A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at the latest updates from Ukraine, discuss Russia's re-entry into the grain deal, and we analyse the impact of the war on the energy security and resilience of Europe and Russia. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of November, day 252. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and our guest, Dionis Chinusha. Dionis is a risk analyst based in Germany and associated with the Eastern European Study Centre in Vilnius. His research and writing looks at energy security and state resilience, with a focus on Eastern Europe and Russia. Tom, can I start with you? What's the latest from Ukraine? Well, hi, David. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, another busy night last night for Ukrainian air defence. The Ukrainian Air Force said that they, were, they shot down 12 of 13 Iranian Major Heed 136 drones fired uh, at the country, launched by launched by Russia. Uh, six each shot down in the eastern and central regions of the country. The uh, the Air Force said this brings to the the total number of of these 136 drones shot down to more than 300 since the uh, well since February the 24th. Um, now Iran continues to deny supplying Russia with these weapons. But President Zelensky has said uh, he believes that Russia has ordered, not necessarily taken delivery of, but ordered as many as two and a half thousand or 2,400 to be precise, um, with the aim of attacking critical infrastructure. I mean, these are these are low, low, slow and noisy, which is largely why they are able to be um, hit by air defence. But if um, if those air defence assets are primarily located around military areas, headquarters, uh, critical um, logistic nodes, for example, then the areas of uh, civilian national infrastructure are are necessarily uh, less protected because there are so many of them across a very large country. And that is what Ukraine say that, that, that Russia is targeting. I think the evidence for that is fairly incontrovertible. That's what we've seen in the last few weeks. That's the, the shift of this war away from attacking military targets or any... Um, at Dara said, sort of civilian areas of, of direct military uh, relevance. Uh, they're just going for 
Ukraine's national security, sorry, national infrastructure in order to try and freeze uh, freeze them out over over the winter to come. But that was the the, um, the message last night from um, uh, from the Ukrainian Air Force. Separately, the grain deal is back on. So the the, the deal uh, brokered by uh, by the United Nations and, and Turkey to get uh, grain supplies out of of Ukraine for the uh, export across the world. Um, had been had been postponed after um, uh, Russia walked out of the deal at, at the weekend, but this morning Russia's uh, MOD, their, their Ministry of Defence, said that the deal is back on. Uh, again, um, uh, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan of, of Turkey, sort of instrumental here in, in getting this going. The guy who's actually been able to, uh, well, not keep a foot in both camps. That's that's too too strong. But he's able to speak to both uh, Ukraine and and uh, and Putin. So he was able to broker this uh, this deal. But Russia's defence ministry said, "quote We have managed." I'm sorry, I, I, I should go back. So I'm, I'm interested in, in how they're trying to frame this or how they are framing this narrative. So they said, "quote We have managed to secure the necessary written guarantees from Ukraine that the humanitarian corridor and the Ukrainian ports designated for the supplies will not be used for waging hostilities against Russia. Russia believes that the guarantees appear to be sufficient at this point, and it is resuming the implementation of the agreement." Unquote. Now. President Zelensky has said, he said yesterday um, that these corridors need a proper, reliable, long-term protection. Otherwise, we're just going to stumble from one crisis to another here. Because I think what's happening here is that Russia are attempting to say to those countries around the world who who, who don't follow this, don't follow the Ukraine war um, day to day, it feels somewhat distant to them. But they obviously get a vote in the UN General Assembly and therefore are important to court. Um, they are affected, very heavily affected by these grain supplies. And I think what what Russia is trying to do is to say that any interruption to your grain supply is because of the because of Ukrainian action, their, their military actions, nothing to do with us. We're, we're doing everything we can to get these out uh, to the extent that they've needed written guarantees from Ukraine that the humanitarian corridor will not be used for waging hostilities against Russia and importantly the Ukrainian ports designated for their supplies will not be used for waging hostilities against Russia so I think they're, they're leaving themselves wiggle room there um, in the future to, to take some sort of punitive action uh, if they wish to say that well Ukrainian Navy or or Ukrainian anti-ship missiles were fired from this port that's used for humanitarian supplies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen them set up these narratives before. Um, so I think it's it's important to note that, yeah, great, the, the grain deal is is back on. Um, but but Russia, this is one of the few cards they have. They are they're maximizing the opportunity they have to to um, not only control this, uh, uh, the provision of grain in a, in a bid to appeal to like say those those votes around the world who um who care more about the grain than um the actual you know what's going on in the war itself um and they are they're fr- taking every opportunity to frame the narrative in that in that regard just got one 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 more point but i'll, I'll take a little break there and let you come back david Thanks, Dom. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, when you're looking over the events at the front across Ukraine, we've had the the speedy counterattack in Kharkiv in September, and we know that the Russians are fortifying the southern city of Herzon against what we believe is an impending Ukrainian assault. I just wondered if you had any comment on whether you think that uh, activities are starting to slow down militarily as as winter approaches, or, or is that completely incorrect? Uh, no, not completely incorrect. I mean, it depends what you mean by slow down. Certainly the lines, the, the actual front line, if you, if you like, you're going to draw a line on the map. They are they are starting to solidify as winter approaches. There, there may well be one more big uh, chapter to be written this year around Herzon. Quite what that will be, 
you know, will, will play out in the next uh, next few weeks. Um, but I think that the lines are largely freezing in. That's not to say that there's there's not a lot going on. I mean, there's still a huge amount of artillery being fired at, at this at this area um, and elsewhere across the country, obviously. But but along that that the, the, the front line. Um, I mean, I've been looking at the stats. Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs say this morning that that there are over seventy thousand. Over I think it was over seventy three thousand Russian. Dead, KIA, killed in action, Russian soldiers. And as we say, um, you should multiply that by at least three, if not four, uh, to get the number of wounded as well, which takes you up to the circa 180,000-ish um, that we believe Russia went over the border with in, uh, on February the 24th. Now, that might, that might be one of the reasons why everything slowed down is because there's just simply not the people there. Russia don't have these people. What they do have is... Um, uh, newly mobilised and recently mobilised people that have gone in very poorly uh, trained and equipped and led, but they are there in mass. And the Russian army don't, as we've seen, they don't care about the casualties. They just want to push people forward to kind of keep those lines moving. Um, so they are they are not not afraid to just use people up to try and push those lines. Ukraine, albeit better equipped, trained and led, are much fewer in number, and they are they're much more careful about how they. Um, how they risk their their very valuable personnel. I mean, there's been great support from external partners, NATO, other other partners in the West, other partners around the world, in terms of provision of material and provision of of financial and diplomatic support. But as has been made very clear, the one thing they're not going to do is put boots on the ground. So for all that assistance, Ukraine, in terms of the fighters, they've they've got what they've got. That's that's it. They said earlier on in the war that if they if they went for full mobilisation, they they've got a huge number. I think they put the figure on something like seven hundred thousand um, men of fighting age. Um, that must be men and women of fighting age, but which is a huge a huge number. But I mean they're they're not they're not there yet. They haven't they haven't gone for that step. So they are much fewer in number, uh, albeit better led, trained, and equipped. But they are loath to risk that against this um, this this mass of of mobilised uh, people on the on the Russian side. So. So that, I think that's why the lines aren't aren't moving a great deal. Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying that, like I say, over seventy thousand dead so far. I mean, those numbers are ticking up. I've been watching it the last few days, ticking up by you know in the hundreds, five, six, seven hundred a day, which is a huge number. Um, take it all with a, a pinch of salt ish. You know, you got to you got to be skeptical about about figures, skeptical about all the information sources that you get because it's it is so difficult to get real ground truth in in any war especially this one um i mean but that is, that is a huge number now it, it it could be accurate because the the russian personnel there on the front at the moment are, are not are not the people that that went, rolled over on the border on february the 24th so they're not they're not that well trained they probably are more susceptible to to the fire coming up from from ukraine but it's still a hell of a number five or six seven hundred dead a day um but yeah, just I mean, I think those lines are are largely freezing in for the winter. Um, brackets. Let's keep our eye on heads on in the south. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Dom. Um, Dionis, can I come to you? Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. We're really, really interested in what you have to say about energy security. Um, first of all, would you just introduce yourself and let our listeners know where you are and what kind of things you're looking at? Um, thank you, David. Uh, hi, everyone. I hope that you can hear me well. Well, as you mentioned, I'm based in Germany, and since the war started, uh, I have actually switched my research in a way and started to look closely to what Russia does 
in Ukraine using its military um, capabilities to actually undermine the independence and territorial uh, integrity of, of this country, but at the same time using, um, let's say, a more sophisticated uh, set of tools in order to, to achieve its goals. Of course, we have seen that Ukraine has shown uh, great resilience against the Russian aggression, including uh, in what we uh, we know as energy security, but that happen happens and has been happening due to uh, the large support coming from the EU, and uh, and in addition to that, also the uh, the abilities of Ukrainians to uh, to advance certain energy projects like the joining of the um, of the European um, electricity grid. But maybe you have more specific questions because um, I think that the discussion is is about the current situation, and I think that there is a lot to to talk about that. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that overview, Dionis. Um, just quickly, I just wanted your reaction to the news that Russia is re-entering the grain deal. I know you've been you've been looking at this in parts of your th- thinking about regional security. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I agree with what Dom has mentioned. Uh, in many regards, we are we are witnessing an attempt of Russia to use different narratives that put uh, that put uh, Russia in an advantageous uh, position in terms of shaping a certain uh, a certain um, a certain topic for the global South. Because I believe that we don't talk about about Russia trying to persuade the Europeans where the communication or the the access to uh, to credible media is still uh, in a good uh, in a good shape we are we are dealing with uh, with the disinformation that Russia is using to influence those who are uh, who are depending on 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 uh, on grains coming from Ukraine, those who who feel the food security to uh, to a different uh, level than than we are doing here in in Europe. So this specific move uh, of of Russia has been um, has been um, decided. Uh, Exactly from this point of view, to influence the, uh, the the narrative, and at the same time to add to other uh, several narratives that that are going on in parallel, and we have seen uh, how Russia has been uh, has been promoting the so-called um, uh, conversation about dirty bomb, and then now they are again talking about the tactical uh, use of, uh, of of nukes uh, against Ukraine. So uh, they try to uh, to make the first of all their own public at home uh, discussing how um, how Russia can strike against Ukraine, but at the same time to increase the pressure on the international community, especially in the global global. Uh, about the necessity of having negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. Well, thanks very much. Um, Let's get into your work. You write about regional security and energy security. Can I ask, how are these interlinked in Russia and Ukraine? Can you give us a bit of an overview of of these factors in, in both countries? Well, Russia has um, has been very uh, uh, agile in using the 
dependencies of, of other countries uh, on on the exports of uh, of Russian gas primarily. And uh, as we all know, Ukraine is an important uh, transit country uh, where, through which Russia has been uh, supplying gas to, to Europe. Many things have happened uh, since the beginning of this year, especially in the last couple of months. And uh, it's important to, to mention that, that Russia was already targeting to reduce the supply of gas through Ukraine last year when uh, when we have registered uh, 25% of decrease of, of gas uh, sent uh, to Europe through Ukraine. But but this was only the beginning. What what we have seen this year is that uh, this is not this is not uh, just the uh, is not the the the, uh, the current object of, of of Russia. It tries to to rather uh, destroy on the one hand the uh, critical infrastructure of Ukraine, uh, primarily that which is responsible for producing electricity. And this is important in order to break the resilience of, of the Ukrainians uh, during the current Russian aggression, but at the same time to increase the cost uh, that uh, lies on, on the Ukrainian uh, budget, because we know that Ukraine is in need for external assistance. So targeting the critical infrastructure of Ukraine right now is is important in order to uh, to carry out this uh, war of attrition against the Ukrainian state as well as to uh, to increase the cost of the war for Ukraine but also for those who are supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression so therefore for Russia now the target is not uh, to destroy the uh, the pipelines the that are that are exporting uh, gas, Russian gas through through Ukraine, but rather to focus on other more on other issues that are reducing the capacity of of Ukraine to uh, to survive the the Russian aggression, and when it comes to uh, to other uh, important. Um, um, elements of of of, uh, of Russian energy leverage on 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 Europe, we have we have also noticed that that Russia is really uh, losing very quickly uh, what what we knew as as European dependence on on Russia. Uh, we know that the Nord Stream uh, one and Nord Stream two are not functional uh, because of the uh, explosions that we are uh, we we. Uh, understand Russia is involved in. Then we also have the uh, the decision of Russia to hold the export of gas to uh, to different EU countries uh, because of the sanctions, uh, as as Russia uh, is uh, is saying. And only uh, Hungary right now is receiving. Uh, Gas from uh, from Russia, but not through Ukraine, but rather from uh, the Turkish stream. So uh, there is a lot of a lot of things going on, and Russia is trying to adjust to the new energy reality in Europe, which is importing more through LNG and is increasing the energy ties with with Northern Africa and also is looking for ways to reduce the uh, the energy consumptions um, for the for the European economies. Thank you very much. Can we flip the question around a little bit? So we've looked at Russia 
Uh, and that was a, a great overview. Can can you explain um, the Ukrainian position now, Ukrainian energy re- resilience, and give our listeners a sense of where Ukraine gets its uh, energy from, what the grid looks like? I, th- I think that that's potentially something we've been missing in the conversation so far. Well, the Russians uh, have been targeting um, various elements of, of energy critical infrastructure. We know that more than 40 uh, of such elements have been uh, have been targeted successfully by the Russian uh, missiles as well as the Iranian uh, kamikaze drones. And I think that this is just the beginning because uh, what we know is that Russia needs to uh, to damage to produce as much damage as it can before the the temperatures. Uh, are going to do with uh, with the refugees that potentially could uh, return from uh, from Ukraine or come in bigger numbers. So we don't talk only about how the Ukrainian state can survive during the winter, but also how the pressure of of uh, of pushing uh, the Ukrainians away from Ukraine can actually influence the political decisions in the EU and among the EU member states. So therefore, it's it's important to to uh, understand how um, how we can help the Ukrainians to actually protect their critical infrastructure. And in this regard, I remember that the uh, the NATO uh, member states have discussed. Uh, the beginning of October about reshifting their attention to to the protection uh, to the air um, air protection um, uh, support for Ukraine, and I think that this will be one of the one of the priorities uh, of the upcoming um, external uh, assistance coming to or going to Ukraine. And uh, more than that, we also uh, know that the Ukrainians. Um, are in um, in the position of of reducing the the consumption of, of of gas because first of all the war has been affecting the the domestic production of of gas which uh, in Ukraine was uh, quite uh, was an important source of of, of uh, energy security right now the uh, the gas the gas storage of the country is filled with 13 billion uh, cubic meters, uh, which is about 70% um, uh, of the volumes of the last year. So we might have also problems with uh, with supplying the Ukrainian population and the business, which is still running in, in Ukraine, with energy in order to uh, to function properly and, and be, uh, be actually resilient towards the or against the Russian aggression. Dionis, in one of your recent articles, you talked about how Ukraine, I mean, you've just touched on it, is, is attempting to import energy. Um, you mentioned this, the synchronization um, of transmission networks that was attempted in March. Um, I think this podcast is a good place to go into the details a little bit. So can you explain to uh, our listeners what they try to do? What, what does what does synchronization of transmission networks mean? Uh, why did they have to do it? And was it successful? Yes, I think that this was a very important step in order to create alternative uh, imp- or creates routes for alternative imports of power uh, from the EU countries. 
which form uh, which form the EU uh, EU power grid. And recently, the conversations that the Ukrainians have been uh, have been holding with the EU counterparts were were about importing electricity from Slovakia. So the synchronization with the EU uh, EU transmission. Uh, power transmission and greed is important specifically for security reasons. Because if the country like Ukraine or Moldova are not able to produce electricity from their own uh, capacities, then they can rely on import on imports from, from the EU. The only aspect which can be sensitive, uh, especially given the uh, financial situation of Ukraine, but also of Moldova, which is part of this uh, of this package of uh, synchronization that took place in March this year, is that the costs are higher than those for Ukraine and Moldova than those that could be uh, could be secured through the internal uh, production, which means that even if Ukraine is able to import these alternative uh, sources of energy, it is still import. It is still uh, very uh, very important to uh, to give Ukrainians financial support in order to pay for this uh, more expensive uh, electricity. So this is the the sensitive part of the issue. But when it comes to security, then as it was happening with the reverse of of the gas supply that Ukraine has developed uh, in the second, in in the last few years, importing a lot of gas from uh, from Slovakia, Hungary and other countries and no gas from uh, from Russia, the same principle goes for, for electricity. Now Ukraine can do that in order to uh, to ensure the minimum necessity of electricity again in order to uh, to provide the population with the public services such as uh, heating and, and, and other vital uh, vital services uh, that the state is obliged in a way to to provide its population with. So synchronization, just just to be clear, does that mean that? They were adjusting the ability of the Ukrainian uh, electricity grid to receive imports of European energy. I, j- I just want to be clear about sort of the details of what that actually means. Yes, you're right. This is about this is about technical issues, and it was about the adjustments at the at the technical level uh, between the uh, between the grids of of Ukraine and the European ones, which were not working uh, at, the, uh, at the same. Were, using the same standards so now the standards are are uniform and this uh import both from or the import and export both from ukraine and from the eu is technically possible and this plan was uh, was uh, uh prepared for 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 some time and if not the war then it was scheduled for the next uh, for the next two years so the beginning of the war has been uh also very uh, important and had a transformative role for this energy interdependence and interconnection between Ukraine, Moldova and and the European Union. Thank you very much for explaining that. Um, Can we talk a little bit about Moldova? Uh, You've mentioned the country a few times. This is Ukraine's uh, western neighbour. How has the conflict and and, uh, energy security impacted Moldova in the past few months? Well, because we are dealing with uh, with highly interdependent uh, systems when we talk about energy and electricity or gas supply, 
Moldova is is very much a victim, a collateral uh, victim of uh, of uh, what Russia is doing to Ukraine. So uh, when Ukraine has been forced to reduce the volumes of of, of gas through one of the entry points, uh, then this also affected the volumes that that went to to Moldova. Right now, when uh, Russian uh, Russian missiles started to to strike the um, the critical infrastructure of Ukraine that is producing electricity, Ukraine has been forced to to stop the export of of its electric electricity to Moldova. Moldova has been buying about thirty percent of of the imported electricity from Ukraine. And therefore, um, for Moldova, it's also important to have this uh, ability to import from from the EU uh, grid, which is or has become an, um, a reality after synchronization that took place um, simultaneously uh, with Ukraine. So both Ukraine and Moldova now are uh, somehow under the protection, under the umbrella of the EU when it comes to uh, to exports or imports, both of electricity and natural gas. Thank you very much. Um, I know that Dom has been listening. Dom, you have a question for Dionis. Do you want to come in? Yeah, thanks, David. Hi, Dionis. Lovely to, to have you with us. I'm um, just wondering if you could give us your opinion, please, from a, from a risk practitioner's uh, perspective of the the unexpected, or, or maybe not unexpected, but the much more rapid move away from from fossil fuels and Russian oil, oil and gas in particular, that uh, that Europe, uh, the the stance that Europe is now taking, what is it going to have any impact because of the 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 the, the sort of lurch away that um, that was been precipitated by the war? Yes, you are. Uh, you are in a way right, though we need to also consider the fact that with the high prices for oil the um, and how it affects the affordability of prices for the consumers, the states, especially in the, in the Western Hemisphere, um, are obliged or, or feel the necessity to, uh, to offer um, subsidies to, to the businesses and to try to help the population, the most vulnerable, with compensation schemes, which in a way takes away money uh, that could go uh, for the green transition. So from this point of view, the Russian war has a detrimental um, consequence. But on the other hand, we uh, we see that the EU decision makers are understanding the importance of making the transition as as quick as possible uh, in order to reduce the dependency that that the west had on uh, on um, on petrostates like like russia so it's clear now that uh, the eu should uh, or even the us which is which is going to throw a lot of uh, a lot of money in order to increase the production of of clean energy that they need to make sure that what happened in 2022 is not going to uh, to repeat anytime soon, which means that Russia should not be allowed to have the capacities to weaponize the energy and to weaponize the gas dependency of, of the West. Of course, even even if the EU is is buying much less uh, uh, gas from uh, from Russia, which uh, decreased many folds, uh, it's still. A, 
buying certain volumes of, of, uh, of Russian gas coming as LNG. So there are ways for Russia to still be able to sell its gas, but we don't see anything similar to what was at the beginning of this year when Russia was relying very much on the dependence of the EU on gas in order to uh, reduce the or to distract uh, EU from solidarity towards Ukraine. Thank you. And just one more, if I may. There's been a huge number of displaced people because of the war. I know a lot of men have not been able to leave. I can't remember the exact age group. Was it was it 18 to 55? I can't remember exactly the, the age groups that can't leave the country, but a huge number of women have left the country. So have you seen any impact in terms of a, a, a kind of a, a management or a business leader, technician brain drain? And are you expecting any anything? What would be the impact of that if there was one? Unfortunately, uh the war against Ukraine uh, that uh, Russia started this year, but also the events uh, in Belarus uh, two years ago, they have led to a very uh, intense um, phenomenon of migration from Eastern Europe to uh, to the EU and the UK. So I think that this this geopolitical instability is creating um, exactly this kind of uh, um, fertile soil for, for brain drain, especially if we take into account the recent partial mobilization that Russia has initiated uh, and how it affected the, um, the human uh, resources uh, and the labor, the stability on the labor market within Russia. How many, uh, how many people from IT and other important sectors for the Russian economy have, uh, have left the country in order to escape the, uh, the Russian um, uh, army and, and the war uh, in, in Ukraine. So we, we understand that uh, on the one hand, the war is, uh, is creating this migration from Russia uh, be, uh, towards other countries, including Central Asia, but also how the war is obviously creating a lot of uh, humanitarian issues for Ukraine and how many Ukrainians are still abroad and probably will not be able to come back because of, of what Russia is, uh, is doing right now by destroying, um, by destroying the Ukrainian critical infrastructure. So there are two, at least two aspects of, of the migration uh, issues related to Eastern Europe, and and I think that the war is going to uh, is going to create even more in even more migration, including brain drain that should be in a way tackled uh, adequately by by the EU and Western partners in order to make sure that these people are going to return to to Ukraine because Ukraine will need a lot of uh, well educated. Um, uh, population in order to uh, to repair the country after the war is over. Thanks, uh, Dionis, for that. Dionis, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important to mention? I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear from you just a little bit more about, I mean, you, you've, you've touched on it, but the fact that the Russian military are, are not just striking sort of energy infrastructure, they're striking all sorts of different critical infrastructure. It'd be good to get a bit of a rundown from you just for our listeners so they can really really understand the magnitude of what, what, what is being hit and, and the breadth of what is being hit and what that might mean for the population. What, well, not might mean, what, what it does mean. Well, given that, that uh, the Russian uh, pundits are talking openly about creating 
uh, epidemiological crisis within Ukraine by striking the sanitation installations, not only the uh, the uh, elements of critical infrastructure that are producing electricity, but also those elements that are uh, that are used to to clean the water uh, for canalization and and so on and so forth. It is clear that the intentions of Russia is to make the country inhospitable for for the population and to create as much harm as possible to multiply the the crisis that the that the country is going through in order to uh, to draw away the energy the uh, political attention the administrative resources from uh, from fighting from uh, against Russians and from the counteroffensive, which w- which has been successful until now, to other issues that are also very relevant for for the resilience, for the soci- societal resilience of the Ukrainians, which is related to exactly um, preventing the country from falling into into epidemiological crisis. Well, thank you very much for that, Tom. I don't know if you want to comment on any of that, or or shall we go to your final few updates? Well, I will wrap any thoughts there into my into my final update, please. So, so, um, uh, shall I go with that now? So you can f- finish with Dionis. Let him have the final word. I just just note that. Uh, so, my final thoughts are, are Russia's attitude to the UK at the moment. So, Russia's foreign affairs affairs ministry have said this morning that they are going to summon Britain's ambassador to Moscow uh, over what it says as the involvement of British specialists in the Ukrainian drone strike on the, uh, the Russia's Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol. Uh, now, we think this is in in regard to, or we think Russia is, is holding Britain to blame here, for, to account here, uh, because of the, the story that we actually did some months ago of, of uh, the Royal Navy helping Ukraine's Navy to, to work with the Remus drone to um, hunt mines. And we think they've Russia have taken that and said, ah, there you go, Britain's responsible for this uh, the drone strike at the weekend. Um, also, just hold that thought for a moment. Also, today we had a, a background briefing with, with a Western official. Uh, the Western official said that, uh, amongst other things, said that, that um, Russia did not expect to be fighting in Ukraine in the winter and also said that uh, Putin is, is, quote, probably better informed now than he was at the beginning, but I suspect is not completely the unvarnished truth, which I thought was quite interesting. But also, and in relation to my point about the UK, the Western officials said, and this was in regard to Nord Stream, uh, said that Kremlin is trying to detract attention with wild stories about the UK. Don't fall for it. so, so Russia here, we, we've we've got the the drone strike on Sevastopol. We've got Russia now saying you, uh, Britain is um, uh, somehow something to do with Nord Stream. Of course, if you remember, it was Britain behind the plot for the dirty bomb. So this this Russia is now sort of sort of looking for external, uh, looking to point the finger externally, uh, which not only keeps the tries to race the race the agenda or, or lead the narrative on the international on the international front but also this will play very well inside Russia especially images of the British ambassador um, being being sort of you know, dr- driven into the uh, to go and see the Russia's foreign foreign minister today um, for a dressing down I mean that will play very well and it all points to this fortress Russia fortress Moscow type mentality that that um, that Russia is not losing this war against Ukraine it is losing a war in Ukraine because they're actually fighting Britain and NATO and, and, and everybody else. So it's all part of the same narrative. Um, so watch out for how Russian media play this, this uh, appearance of Britain's ambassador to Moscow um, later on today, I think, at the foreign ministry. 
Thanks, Tom. Very quickly, um, can I just get your thoughts on... Uh, we had a story yesterday about this what well, suspected, alleged uh, Ukrainian strike behind enemy lines in which on, on a Russian airbase in which two helicopters were destroyed. Um, you had some thoughts about that. Would you take us through them? Yeah, OK. Briefly, I'm, I'm sceptical um, because... They don't need to film themselves doing it. A couple of KA-52 attack helicopters going up in smoke. I mean, we've seen these kind of things happen before, and Ukraine neither confirmed nor denies it. And everyone goes, ha ha, I bet it was the Ukrainians. Uh, That's a very good terrorist attack, or or, sorry, (laughs) partisan attack or or what have you. So they don't need to film themselves doing it to get the... To get the uh, the sort of international strategic comms win out of it, and also I'm just slightly sceptical about someone filming themselves doing it. You know, I've I've only had a walk-on part in in in, in all the punch-ups the country decided to get into while I served in the military. But believe me, when things get a little tasty, that the last thing on my mind was, oh, you know, have I got my lippy on properly? Is my, is my helmet straight? Because I'm going to be on camera. I mean, I just didn't, didn't have the capacity for any of that stuff. So I'm not suggesting that this strike on these helicopters were, were not by uh, partisans or some kind of um, fifth columnist within Russia, uh, disgruntled Russian employees or, or whatever it was. I just I just wonder if that film, the film of it, um, is, is totally legit. It just seems... Um, you know, if you've got the capacity to take a camera and film yourself doing it while, while you're there, I mean, well, well done. You're a better soldier than than I ever was. Um, and I don't think they needed to do it. They they would they've got the propaganda win out of out of the effect. Um, so I'm just a little bit sceptical about about the film, but I don't want that to detract from. It looks as if there was some kind of of internal action against uh, against Russia to destroy these aircraft. But I just just you know hold that one out there. Thank you very much, Tom. And thank you very much, Dionis, for joining us. Dionis, can I just come to you uh, finally? What, will, what, what, what are your final thoughts? What do you want our um, listeners, our audience to go away and think about um, based on what you've said today? And, and also, what, what are you going to be looking at in the next few months? Uh, well, I think that there are at least three major each issues that I'm going to follow closely. One is whether Belarus will be playing an important role in the future attacks of Russia against Ukraine, because this is uh, very, very much discussed. And we know that Belarus is uh, would be affected uh, because sanctions will follow after such kind of uh, decisions by Lukashenko. But still, uh, we cannot exclude uh, this uh, scenario. Then we also, I'm also curious whether uh, Russia is going to uh, to strike the uh, the remaining or the remaining routes of uh, of gas supply through Ukraine to to Europe, um, because we know that critical infrastructure is targeted now and maybe um, closer to to December the Russians are going to to do that also to the uh, to the gut infrastructure this is also uh, an, op- an opportunity for them to increase the energy crisis for Ukraine but also for the rest of Europe and last but not least um, it's also very um, important to uh, to have a, a, an eye on, on how Russia is developing the narrative about about the dirty bomb and the use of nu- nukes against Ukraine because this can be the game changer uh, Russia understands very well that that the world is especially those who are protesting against the war and are, are putting pressure on the Western governments to go for negotiations or to to, uh, to convince the Ukrainians to negotiate with Russia that the 
the the new uh, story uh, is going to exactly to have an in, an impact on on this kind of decisions. So these are three topics that I'm going to uh, to monitor in the in the coming weeks. Ukraine the latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.